Hi everyone, my name is Nick Harris and I am a fellow in the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security. The Middle East Security Program is wrapping up a year-long project where we investigated different policy options for the U.S. as it charts out a new approach to the Syrian crisis. In particular, our study investigated how the U.S. could leverage Syria's fragmentation in a way that it could affect an outcome that benefits the United States and the broader international community. We are conducting a series of podcasts that look at some of the thornier issues that have impacted U.S. policy towards Syria since 2011. Today we'll be joined by three distinguished guests. First, Frances Z. Brown. She is currently a fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She worked as a practitioner and analyst in the U.S. government for over 15 years, including stints at the White House National Security Council and in the U.S. Department, U.S. Agency for International Development's Office of Transition Initiatives. We're also joined by Melissa Dalton, who directs the Cooperative Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Melissa previously served in DOD for 10 years, and she has extensive experience working on Syria-related issues, both inside and outside of the U.S. government. And last but not least, our own Lauren Dejan Schulman, who's the Deputy Director of Studies and a Leon E. Panetta Senior Fellow here at the Center for New American Security. Lauren's research interests include national security and defense strategy and reform, and she served in many different senior positions in the U.S. government, including as a senior advisor to former National Security Advisor Susan Rice. Today we will be talking about the subject of in or out. What should the U.S. do in Syria? Happy to be joined here by Melissa, Francis, and Lauren. I just want to start off the conversation with sort of a, a sort of a bigger picture question. You know, the U.S. has established a zone of control in Syria that's almost one-third of the country and has some of its best natural resources. So I want to ask you, Melissa, what should the U.S. do to leverage that zone to achieve its end states in Syria? Thanks so much, uh, Nick, for the opportunity to join you on this important uh, podcast and important topic. Um, I believe that the U.S. does have an opportunity going forward uh, to leverage its relationships and potentially, if it chooses to, sustain an enduring presence in northeast Syria to achieve its, its objectives um, in the broader country and in the region. Uh, but I think it is worth taking a step back and considering exactly what that outcome and those objectives are. Um, are we looking to use that leverage to compel changes in the regime's behavior? Are we looking to consolidate uh, gains following counterterrorism operations vis-a-vis -vis ISIS? Are we looking to deter Iranian aggression in the region? Are we looking to ensure the security of our allies and partners in the region? That, of course, prompts some interesting questions vis-a-vis uh, -vis Turkey. Um, and then, of course, there's also the question of how our presence and relationships in Syria intersect with our broader global goals of competition with, with Russia, which, of course, has um, perhaps even stronger strategic interests in, in Syria than the United States. Um, so I think we need to be very clear-eyed about how we're going to use our relationships and any sort of enduring presence um, in Northeast Syria to achieve any range of those objectives because um, they could potentially um, contradict uh, each other depending on the, the policy and operational choices that, that flow from them. 
Um, I think the most immediate concern is, of course, um, consolidating the gains following uh, the counterterrorism operations vis-a-vis ISIS. How can we ensure that ISIS is not able to <coughs> regrow um, from its current state of insurgency and uh, extend into, uh, once again, territorial control that depends upon um, sustaining our linkages with the Syrian Democratic Forces, coming to some sort of agreement with the Turks in terms of forestalling um, any sort of unilateral military intervention into the north. And of course, Ambassador Jeffrey is uh, at heart at work trying to broker that right now. Yeah, and I would I would completely agree with that. And I would just add, when we think about leverage, for me, I like to distinguish between potential leverage and actual leverage. And I think what we've seen here in Northeast Syria is, Nick, as you, as you point out, we've got a lot of potential leverage because of the territory, because of the amount of natural resources, the water, arable land. These are all things that vis-a-vis a regime who is resource-starved uh, and poor, these are all great potential sources of leverage. But for me, converting that into actual leverage requires a couple more things. It requires consistent messaging from our part, the US part. It requires a sense of predictability that sends a clear signal to both the Assad regime and ISIS that they can't just wait us out. Because otherwise, there's nothing uh, to say that they, they see any, um, any sense that we will be there tomorrow or next year. And so any concessions we're trying to get from our leverage uh, get undermined as a result. Um, I say this in spite of what I think is really tremendous work by patriotic Americans on the ground and in diplomatic capitals trying to send a strong message, trying to convert that potential leverage into actual leverage. But I think we need to be pretty honest that the president's own tweets and messaging has really undermined that sense of predictability. I also think from the civilian side, the administration's budget requests have further undermined the sense of predictability, the sense that we're going to convert our potential leverage into actual leverage. Uh, the numbers for Syria um, stabilization and early recovery assistance have gone down each year. The president famously uh, froze some of that money, most of that money last year. And this year, the budget request uh, is very small for Syria, and most of it earmarked for other causes other than the Northeast. So I think we, we need to be re- real about the fact that even if we do try to set a new course, um, use, use actual leverage, a lot of that damage is done. And I think some of our SDF partners and others on the ground are already hedging as a result. They're already moving on as we, as we sort of cogitate about these issues in Washington. Yeah, I think Francis and Melissa are asking all the right questions. I would just uh, add a little bit further that the, the United States tends to forget sometimes that in its foreign policy endeavors, that leverage does not automatically equal good outcomes. I, I like uh, Francis's uh, delineation of potential leverage and actual leverage. I think actually utilizing the leverage that we have could be quite expensive to the US, both in terms of dollars and also equally importantly, strategic time by senior leaders. And that's something that when we make foreign policy decisions is not always readily apparent. It's not just the amount of resources and personnel on the ground and otherwise that we would need to be able to maintain in order to utilize this leverage that we have in this province. Uh, But also, it's going to be quite expensive in terms of negotiation time with senior folks. Turkey, Russia, Syria, and others in the region are not exactly easy, low drag, very kind of, you know, low key partners to work with. They tend to demand a lot of time, a lot of patience in coming to outcomes that are going to be in any way tenable for anybody. 
And that may be well worth it, but it should also be levered or, or weighed against other priorities that those same leaders may want to execute elsewhere. And these are, you know, looking at how much time you're going to spend on a calendar when making a foreign policy decision is not a simple way to make a make a, make that choice. But on the other hand, if you don't recognize that this is going to be time intensive and not just for the next six months, but for the next several years, it, dedicating the U.S. towards an outcome that it is not able to actually fulfill is going to make, leave us worse off in many ways than if we had just said been honest with ourselves about like what we were actually able to dedicate up front. I completely agree with that. And just to add, I think a feature of the Trump administration's Syria policy in general has often been this delta between the maximalist stated objective and the minimalist tools or the ill-coordinated tools. And I, I fear, as Lauren mentions, that we could get ourselves into a similar situation here as well, where we've stated a really maximalist objective for what we're doing with our leverage, but we don't simply have the tools or personnel in place uh, to achieve that. We've already seen sort of the downsizing of the high-level diplomatic apparatus after the resignation of Ambassador McGurk. Ambassador Jeffrey is nobly taking on all those roles. There's other senior diplomatic corps as well. But it's, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the White House isn't going to spend a lot of time navigating and negotiating these trade-offs and negotiations. And, and only to add to these excellent points, um, I think the, the tragedy of, of Syria is that um, the spillover effects of the conflict don't stay within Syria. As devilish of a policy problem as this has been the last eight years, um, and, and we haven't quite gotten it right as an international community, let alone the U.S. and its own policy, as we enter this next phase of the conflict, and I would argue that it is just that, that it's not the end of the war, um, that we are going to see spillover effects into Europe, into the region, and beyond um, in ways that do impact U.S. strategic interests. So this, this point of being clear-eyed again about what it is we're trying to achieve, what our core objectives are, how we're going to prioritize them, and then allocating the right amount of resources to those tasks is as vital as ever. No, I want to pick up on this thread and thank you. This issue that you all three of you raised, which I think is very key, this ends to means issue, something that has sort of stood in the way of U.S. policy now for the better part of a decade. And one of the ends that the United States is trying to achieve is significant changes in the Assad regime's behavior, if not to actually change the regime, but then to change its behavior. Some analysts believe that would, in fact, change the regime, but for the time being, to change its behavior. From your perspective, what are the lessons that we can learn from the history, the recent history of U.S. efforts to change the Assad regime's behavior, and how can we take those efforts and try to change behavior moving forward? Uh, just, I'll start quickly. Um, it seems to me that, yeah, we've had this uh, objective of changing the regime's behavior, and often that gets manifested in that we hope Russia will help change the regime's behavior. We saw this recently with the retaking of southern Syria and uh, this hope that uh, somehow, in this circuitous way, uh, the, the regime would change its behavior. I think it's one more example of this theme of maximalist ends and not really uh, sufficient tools to get there. I think if potentially we reframe our ends as an acknowledgement that Syria's outcome is going to be suboptimal, and but we have a range on the spectrum of suboptimal, and go from there. That might be the way forward. Uh, is terms of the regime's behavior and what it specifically does. We know that just telling Assad be better, be nicer, be a reformist, that's not going to work. Um, we also ha would have to be really specific about what changes we would want from him. But I do think if we engage in some of the non-sexy, non-glamorous details of how the regime is actually treating its citizens, 
we might get more traction. So for example, decentralization. It, Law 107 is on the books. The regime has stated that it wants to decentralize. That would help in some ways the experience of Sir Syrian citizens. We can actually move forward on that, making decentralization real, getting at some of the problematic issues of Law 107 um, that give a lot of power to the appointed Damascus-appointed provincial governor, and instead moving that to an elected official, for example. We could also engage seriously on the details of the housing and property laws that the regime is uh, rolling out that are an obstacle to return. So in some of these really concrete and kind of nitty-gritty ways, I think we could maybe get more traction than just continually hoping that the regime will become a better or more good faith actor. I think there are some, some hard realities to recognize in, in 2019, um, as much as it pains me uh, to, to say it. Um, the fact that the Assad regime has weathered the storm of, of eight years of, of civil war and concerted international pressure um, and, and actors involved, I think um, greatly reduces the prospects for us to seek uh, a, a change in government, uh, for in, at least in the near term in, in Syria. That said, um, given what is forecasted to be an ongoing insurgency in the East and certainly um, protests that have um, sprouted up in, in Dara and other places, Idlib still um, being an, an unanswered question, I think um, pretends continued instability in Syria in ways that will make it difficult for Assad to reinstitute the type of state control that he had before the war. Um, that being said, the, the relative power centers that have been important for regime stability over the last 60 years are still intact in terms of the Alawi core, in terms of Sunni elites buying into that model, the concentric circles of power um, that, that Assad and his family have relied upon. And so I think the question going forward um, for the U.S., for the international community, is to use the limited leverage that we have strategically. I think um, reconstruction is one of those points. I think um, the the administration and congressional exploration of how reconstruction dollars could be conditioned going forward on specific changes that are made to the governance model in Syria are important and in terms of ensuring humanitarian access to reach Syrian civilians going forward um, in, in very concrete ways um, that connect to, as Francis has very eloquently laid out, the stabilization and um, bottom-up efforts that the U.S. has been supporting over the last few years. So is there a way to broker some model of decentralization for the Northeast, um, potentially for other places over time, that limits the ability of, of Assad, backed by Russia and Iran, to reinsert themselves in, this, um, in those territories? I think the other key piece is more broadly thinking about what degree of leverage should the United States have vis-a-vis -vis China to ensure that they do not come in heavily to Syria reconstruction. When you think about the, the Russians and the Iranians, as much as they have a strategic stake in reconstructing Syria, particularly in um, ways that strengthen their own power and influence on the ground, and I think we are seeing that start to happen, they have constraints um, economically at home that will prevent them from going full bore on reconstruction in Syria. Whereas if the Chinese were to get more heavily involved, um, I do think that that would be problematic for Syria's trajectory vis-a-vis -vis US interests. 
I think you both have made these points more eloquently than I could, so I'll just close out by saying I think that a, a key focus of the United States in, in its area policy over the next year needs to be ensuring that its overarching policy in Syria, whether it be explicit or implicit regime change or something that is probably needs to evolve from that, does not in any way incentivize uh, actively or tacitly the ongoing humanitarian crisis that we see in the region and does not continue to distance us from the, the goals, the, the lower level goes, goals of improving governance and improving the lives of Syrians that we have executed quite well in several other parts of the country. Uh, I think Nick makes this point quite eloquently in his paper that in a lot of ways the U.S. policy by having these this sort of dif different threads and uh, different objectives has now really kind of come to a head in terms of contradicting itself uh, and potentially exacerbating what has been a really long-running humanitarian crisis amongst many other things. Um, and there's no good, easy, non-painful way to deal with that for those who've been working on Syria policy for many years. It's probably going to require us to step back from one of our, some of our initial objectives in the region. I think going forward, however, not thinking about Syria, um, we, as the United States, tend to have this really amazing ability to project our own can-do attitude on a lot of countries in terms of the ability to reform and rebuild a state uh, for, for, another, uh, for a number of objectives. And also the ability to say that like, we don't like the leader of a particular country and they should get going. And that sounds really great and positive and gung-ho whenever the President of the United States says it from behind a podium, but then has long, long-lasting effects that we then have to live with in terms of our policy execution for a long period of time. Uh, and we are seeing the initiation of that in other uh, places as well, Venezuela, Iran, Senator North Korea, um, and would caution our senior leaders in government right now to actually seriously try to learn the lessons that we have painfully learned in Syria, Libya, and elsewhere over the last decade, some of which were very well intentioned, some of which were very well executed, but still did not necessarily have the outcomes that we sought. Now, this is a very interesting point that was just raised in this context, which is where does Syria fit to the broader menu of U.S. policy decisions that it has to make? You know, Melissa, you raised this sort of broader question of what does this mean for China and its engagements in the Middle East, and we know obviously is raised Francis this issue of Russia and what is Russia's role. More in looking at it from a strategic perspective, okay, once you actually say something and you say you intend to do it, have you thought what the consequences are? If I may just sort of ask a follow-up to what we have this excellent discourse here is, is there a risk that if the U.S. does not remain engaged in its zone in Syria, that China and Russia will therefore use that withdrawal or that, some would call it defeat, to expand their range of influence in the broader Middle East? Um, so I think, you know, it's worth taking a step back in terms of what our Chinese and Russian um, interests in the region broadly and then connect them to, to Syria. And I think we're, we're still in a process of determining what those exactly are. Um, and in Russia, for Russia, I think it's quite clear in terms of a longstanding relationship with the Syrian regime in particular um, as a, a client state in terms of supporting its military. It has its two strategic bases, um, both sea and, and air bases in Syria. 
Um, there are also strong um, counterterrorism concerns that Russia has vis-a-vis um, -vis the, the conflict in Syria and how that threatens uh, Russia's southern flank, um, the bleed over through, through the Caucasus. Um, and we've seen actually the foreign fighter recruitment into Syria being connected to networks that, that have historically threatened Russia. So I think you can, you can make those clear connections um, and then paint this broader picture of how from a strategic or um, information operations perspective, Russia has been able to capitalize upon its relatively low cost intervention into Syria to start um, connecting to other partners um, that historically have been more closely aligned with the United States over the last three few years through um, potential arms sales, um, broader political relationships, um, Arab partners in the region also uh, capitalizing upon the opportunities to do very visible handshakes um, with uh, Vladimir Putin um, and also potential um, broader economic and, and energy deals. Um, so I think Russia is trying to, to insert itself and capitalize upon um, the IO victory that, that has gained from, from Syria. China, I think it's, it's a bit um, harder to discern what their um, ultimate goals are for the region, um, certainly strong economic um, ties, um, the, the trade flows from the Middle East, from the Gulf um, to, to Asia certainly matter. Um, and I do think there may be an opportunistic um, way for China to insert itself, um, given perceptions of lack of U.S. commitment to, to the region in ways that could prove problematic for the United States down the road. And certainly if you take a broader scope to the region in terms of Chinese investments in the Horn, um, and uh, the military sort of masked uh, capabilities and basing that they've been developing with the veneer of uh, economic opportunity for, for that part of the region, I think also um, increases a degree of leverage, again, to use that L word, uh, for, for China in the region. Again, hard to forecast how that's actually going to intersect um, U.S. interests going forward, but I think it does um, strengthen the possibility that some of our partners may have other options. Um, how that actually translates into constraining U.S. options going forward, we'll have to see. Anyone else? I, if I could just actually add to that, I think the other piece of this is more from an operational perspective. I think for the first time since the Cold War, the United States has been operating in a contested environment in Syria in ways that our you know, planners are thinking about what future contests in Eastern Europe or the Asia Pacific could look like. Um, we're starting to see from um, an electronic warfare, IO, um, other sort of gray zone type activities have been playing out real time in Syria in ways that have challenged um, U.S. operators um, that I think are concerning for the future. And Melissa, to build on that point, uh, from what we understand from our Israeli partners, is they are constantly getting this real time sort of uh, experience engaging with modern Russian technologies. Yeah. And one of their major concerns, which ties into sort of this, can Russia create this sort of no-go zone for itself in the core Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean, is if it turns on its S-400 anti-air system. And they say that if that happens and the Assad regime turns on its S-300s, yeah. you'll have a, 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 deni a sort of air denial environment that's relatively unprecedented in the modern Middle East. This is 
very important in context, as you all three of you raised, Syria is very important in the context of broader geopolitics. You know, um, I want to build off a point that Francis made. I think it's very important that we're faced with a range of suboptimal choices. And um, as you know, we here in the Washington DC <laughs> policy community are sometimes referred to derogatively or sometimes lovingly as the blob. And the blob has said that, you know, President Trump's, you know, numerously stated inclination to just get out of Syria now that he's knocked the crap out of ISIS is something that he shouldn't do. However, some Syria analysts believe, you know what, that is the right way to go, that the U.S. needs to minimize its investment and its exposure in Syria and take those resources and put them elsewhere. So I'll ask the three of you, if you're going to go on CNN or your network television channel of choice, how would you defend Mr. Trump's decision? Um, so I, I would defend President Trump's decision by saying that uh, there is a historic and understandable tendency that if the United States has deplored, deployed forces in the region, it will figure out something to do with those forces that are not necessarily exactly what its original objectives were. And this is well-intentioned. In some cases, it's often strategically important. But if we continue to maintain forces in Syria with ISIS being defeated, we will inevitably come up with an additional stretch of missions for them that are perhaps not exactly what the present AUMF, which is, in theory, the authority by which they are deployed, um, doesn't actually allow them to do, whether it be get rid of the Assad regime, whether it be to help improve governance councils in northeastern Syria, whether it be take out additional extremist groups that are in their region, or to protect our, our friends the Kurds, all of which might actually be a good idea, but have not actually been debated, approved, um, considered by the American people, really debated on in Congress, or frankly articulated by the President of the United States as a mission uh, for the last two decades that we should be undertaking. So I would be possibly in favor, I guess, of pulling U.S. troops out of Syria in order to actually follow the law and stated strategy and uh, you know maybe prevent ourselves from uh, pursuing other kinds of activities in the region that we hadn't actually planned to do. I know that was really persuasive, but I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> I will build on that and I will, I will pick up on one of the maximalist objectives the administration has mentioned, which is the counter-Iran objective. And I think there's a strong argument to be made that if we've now extended our mandate in Syria to go well beyond countering ISIS to stamping out Iranian influence. That is an invitation for probably an open-ended and intrusive US presence, which I think would have all kinds of secondary knock-on effects that should be debated and thought about seriously. So I think in that sense, I'm not in favor of uh, a maximalist counter-Iran open-ended uh, deployment either. Um, I do think it's also worth keeping this in perspective now, if even if current troop levels are reported to be around 2,000 now before any potential drawdown. There's now numbers being thrown around 200, 400. But whatever that number is, that is a fraction of the troops currently on our southern border on a, I think, a, a fairly dubious mission. Um, yes, it's not an apples to apples comparison. It's different kinds of forces. But I think we need to uh, be nuanced when we talk about what this presence actually is and how open-ended it may be, uh, and rather than sort of assume it's either one extreme or the other, look, look really hard at the details on what's entailed and what the actual admission is.
Great. And um, to be clear, this is not what I would advocate, but <laughs> if, if asked to be in the position, um, you know, I think I would go back to, to our earlier thread of conversation in terms of right-sizing strategy to, to resourcing. Um, the, the main impetus for the United States to get involved in Syria, setting aside the airstrikes on, um, in response to the chemical weapons attacks, has been the counterterrorism imperative. Um, it has been ISIS, the threat that it posed um, in terms of its territorial control. We have, through bywas and through our SDF partners, cleared that territory. Um, and now we are shifting to a posture where we are going to empower them going forward um, to secure from a governance perspective um, that area to ensure that ISIS does not grow back. We are also going to ensure that the Israelis, the Iraqis, the Lebanese, the Turks, the Jordanians have the resourcing that they need to take care of their security going forward to minimize um, the, the spillover effects that could emanate from Syria going forward. Um, but the reality is, you know, in terms of vital U.S. national security interests, that power projection uh, capability that ISIS once had um, no longer exists in its prior form, and so it's time for us to, to bring our troops home. I'll add one more comment that I do seriously believe this time, uh, that having U.S. forces deployed with shifting rationales, questionable legal authorities, changing missions as articulated by the Commander-in-Chief, and uh, unrealistic maximalist objectives, as well as, uh, in case, some cases, questionable partners, is dangerous, risky, and does a disservice to those who put their lives at risk for us every day. Thank you. Well, I think that is an, an ex excellent note to end on. Thank you, all three of you, for joining us in this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.